to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Fulick. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fulick, and as always, we like to talk about things related to disaster recovery, business continuity, COVID, resilience, anything that's relatable to those topics and anything that helps you, your organization, or your community plan for and prepare and overcome adverse situations. Long-time listeners, especially on Voice America, you know you will have heard me talk about the Business Continuity Institute Virtual World Conference held in November 2020. I was a speaker at that conference, and I had said for a long time, if I'm lucky, I'll be able to get a couple of speakers to come on the show and talk. Well, today, I am lucky enough to have one of those speakers on the topic of resilience, and I hope I'm saying that right, and I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Gavriel Schneider. Gav, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. That's great. And you're joining us from uh, the land of Oz today, right? That's right. I'm based in Brisbane, Australia. Brisbane. I am my fa- one of my favorite cities. <laughs> I didn't know it's you a good were. Pla- I didn't know it's you a were good place. Brisbane. Yeah, I love it there. You know, the, <laughs> the eye, the, the river taxis. Oh, I just love that place. Yeah, that's where we head office. So next time you come through, come say hi. Oh, I will. Well, I plan on being there. I've already been there three times. I, I plan on going there again. <laughs> um, I know we've got listeners and uh, viewers uh, around the globe. Could you take a minute or two and tell us about yourself, what you do, and how you got into what you do? Sure. Thanks. Uh, and once again, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners about a topic that, you know, in the world we live in now is becoming ever more important. And I think as things are changing Aspects around, you know, resilience, business continuity, uh, risk. Those those used to be specialist vocations that only a few people or large organizations focus on. Yeah. Uh, COVID has certainly shown us that these are skills that we need on a personal level and on a much greater scale. But my background, I'm originally South African. I started my career uh, in the world of martial arts and self-defense, which I oh. still train and teach. And then became a professional bodyguard uh, back in Africa. I worked in many places that most people will never want to go visit on holiday. Okay. Um, Set up uh, my first business in 2000, which was a a specialized security and close protection business, which then expanded into the world of risk and basically became a problem-solving business. So it wasn't really whether something was a security issue, a safety issue, a crisis issue. It was, what is the problem? How can we help you solve it? And that was always the mentality we put across. Uh, I never formally served in the police or military. So to differentiate myself, I started focusing on the academic side of things and did a research project for my master's degree and did that in a Master of Technology and Security Risk, way before doing anything in technology was cool. And... uh, then upgraded that into a PhD where I focused on high consequence decision-making under pressure and how we train people to do that through the lens of use of force, which for me, if somebody's trying to kill you, 
and you have to protect yourself. The consequences are huge and the decision-making window is very small. That's continued to evolve. About six years ago now, we started delivering a postgraduate program in the psychology of risk, which I'm glad to say we've trained several hundred really, really proficient experts in the psychology of risk, which has led to the evolution of Presilience, which we'll talk to a little bit about today. Um, I, I serve as CEO of the Risk to Solution Group, which is a group of five companies that tackle pretty much anything that is non-financial risk. So we've got a safety division, a security division, a medical and health division, a technology division, and our risk consulting and cultural change division, which overarches and focuses primarily on human-centric risk. And uh, probably the last one is that I'm the chair of the Institute for Strategic Risk Management for Australia and New Zealand, as well as being involved with many other associations. Well, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever had anyone with a background like that, at least the way you started. I've never had anyone, you know, a bodyguard, you know, uh, on the show before. So uh, I, I'm sure there's going to be some interesting perspectives coming up that we're going to hear. <laughs> Thanks, and I look forward to sharing those. And, you know, I think this is the interesting, <clears throat> wonderful opportunity that, you know, you mentioned the BCR conference and there are so many good associations and initiatives happening where, you know, as you, know, as you and I were talking about just before we started the interview, so many people seem to fall into these vocations that we're in. Yeah. And, you know, we all bring different strengths to the table. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is if we can't even collaborate and share our different strengths and perspectives, we're not doing the best by our clients, our companies, et cetera, in terms of building real resilience and you know, business continuity capabilities. Agreed. Agree with you. So welcome to the show, Gav. I know I, uh, you told me to call you that going forward. Uh, okay. Now, you, I, I, did I say the word right, resilience? Did I say you it certainly right? did. You certainly so, did. Resilience is right. <laughs> so what is resilience? Sure. Let me give you a quick history snapshot of it, and then I'll go yeah. into what it actually is. So one of the things that I'm sure many of your listeners, particularly if they are practitioners in any sort of risk crisis management or resilience field, will find a challenge is that a lot of what we do is not really palatable for organizations or individuals to think about, because we tend to face worst case scenarios. We think about what could go wrong. And in essence, you know, as it was described to me, we're sometimes the uh, bad news fairies. Yeah, the you know, we, gloom squad, you know. Exactly right. <laughs> and you know, we, about three years ago, we, we were really focused on this, this other side of risk, you know, the opportunity side. And it's, we, we, we found that the market itself didn't understand this. You know, risk had become a dirty word. And then all these sub-vocations of risk, which I include business continuity, crisis management, et cetera, in that, were by definition then almost tarred with the same brush. And one of the biggest frustrations which we are trying to overcome is this idea that risk and business continuity are compliance. You know, you have to have a plan to tick a box. You have to do a risk assessment to tick a box. Yeah. There's no point. You know, all you're doing is, stocking, is stacking up paperwork. We, we use the acronym CYA, cover your ass. That, mm -hmm. that, that's all they're there for. And we, we, we went to the market about four years ago with the idea of risk intelligence, which we've come up with our own definition for it. And the idea is that if we are able to build risk intelligence, much like emotional intelligence, it's a skill and attribute that enables you to make good decisions to grab upside opportunity and minimize downside threat or negative consequence. 
And it's a skill that has to be built. You know, some of us are born with more or less capability to do that. <laughs> but <clears throat> what we found as, and this, this goes back to 2017 when we actually coined the term resilience in the, in the way it's rolling through now, is that mature organizations and forward-thinking individuals had grasped that we need resilience. It's not enough to be compliant. It's not enough to tick the box. We also need this thing, you know, called resilience. The problem we had, and I'm sure, you know, with all the different experts you've interviewed and what you've looked at, resilience is very confusing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk to disaster recovery people in the cyber or IT space, they have a, a picture of what that is. Then you talk to, you know, emergency management services, they have a picture of what that is. Then you talk to psychologists and they've got a different picture of what that is. And, you know, ironically, they're all right from their perspectives. So there, there were two fundamental uh, failure points we found with resilience modeling to be really prepared and really capable to grasp opportunity. So we found the first one is this idea that resilience, even when you look at the technical definitions of it, it's about perseverance, it's about toughness, it's about pushing through adversity it's about managing disruption and quickly and effectively getting back to the point we were before disruption. And it doesn't really talk about this idea of bounce back better or bouncing forward. It doesn't mm -hmm. talk about all the good things we learn going through hardship or, you know, COVID simply being one example, you know, how comfortable we are now with virtual meetings and virtual interfaces and you know, those sort of things. And there's many of them that will come from COVID, but there's many that come from every issue we overcome. This mindset for resilience is a different mindset. It's about setting up a process, a system, and attribute development to be able to actually bounce forward, bounce back better. In our journey, we then found, and we've built a maturity model, which uh, is explained on our website and a whole bunch of other things, happy to share with your members. But we, we found that it's less about you know, resilience being the desired state that you should strive for and more about understanding what you as a person, what your organization and what society at a greater level actually need. And as a result, and you'll get to know me as we chat more, I am a self-acknowledged risk nerd. I love everything to do with risk. I study it, I learn it, I teach it. And, you know, when we were looking at the way risk is rolled out in most organizations, it's based really on concepts that were developed during the first and second industrial revolution. It's managerialism centric, it's compliance centric, it's not agile, and most of the time it's a grudge spend. So one of the things we <clears> found <throat> through our consulting practice is that organizations focus on compliance. You know, they focus on this idea that if I'm told to do something, I will do it, but I'll only do it as much as I'm told to do it. And I want the evidence, not the outcome. So mm -hmm. the starting point of our maturity model is around that compliance, because if you can't even do that, the idea of managing disruption is usually wishful thinking. Yeah. Resilience is the next stage. It's a maturing out of the, the mindset of compliance alone. It's an acknowledgement that, you know, we can't have a plan for everything. We, if we only do what we're told to do, then what happens when, th when opportunities or threats present, which weren't in that spectrum? And it be, it's a highly reactive way of thinking. But, and this is the hard part that we want to get, uh, I guess, the, the global population to understand is that if you can't even apply compliance and resilience, the thought of bouncing forward is unrealistic for you. 
So it really is a maturity model where, you know, if you can't do your basic business continuity planning and actually apply those plans practically, the idea of capitalizing on the disruption is wishful thinking. So next on that maturity model is the resilience idea, which we'll expand a bit more on. But the other fundamental difference we found with resilience and in talking to so many risk and resilience practitioners, one of their frustrations is this proactivity. You know, that in essence, when it comes to compliance and it comes to resilience, most of the time it's a reactive methodology. You know, we think something will happen. At best, we have a plan. Maybe if you have a convincing practitioner in an organization, they've maybe been able to allocate some resources to help them manage a disruption. But most of the time, organizations, and this is both private and public sector, tend to only respond to really bad stuff after they've seen it happen. And then for a while, their attention is focused on that threat. And then slowly, it fades. And in my earlier research, it was something we actually coined the reactive risk spending cycle, because what tends to happen, and I'm sure many of your listeners will relate to this if they work in organizations, that you know they, they, they try and get everybody to understand this. Nobody will give them budget. Nobody will listen. And many of the uh, dedicated professionals push on and persevere anyway. Then something bad happens and an organization will throw money at them. Solve this problem, make sure it doesn't happen again. And because you know, we then have resources, we can solve the problem. But over time, because we've got the resources, the problems usually don't happen again, or that issue doesn't manifest again. So the, the organization then strips away those resources slowly, slowly, slowly until there's nothing left and vulnerability manifests again. And, and then the cycle like, goes on. Kind of like again. building a bridge after, the, after you've already gone across the canyon. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and then it's also the trick of, oh, well, we've built the bridge. It hasn't flooded in five years. So let's stop maintaining the bridge because we don't need it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. That. <laughs> so, so that's sort of where we've gone with resilience. Uh, it's been a real evolving passion for us. And, uh, you know, we've been putting it out as a consulting methodology with the maturity model. We've run some really good cultural change programs with it and organizational development programs. We've now got a, a UK level five program in resilience, high performance and leadership coming out probably next month and an Australian national accredited skills program. And, you know, it's really something that you know, I believe every practitioner in the field of risk, doesn't matter the specific vocation needs to get their head around. But we, you know, we, what we're finding is that the early adopters and innovators within our sector are the ones that are getting this. And they're contacting me the whole time going, tell me more about this and how do I apply it? So, well, so that's a snapshot gonna, and small history of presentation. I know we're going to get into that in uh, more detail uh, very shortly, but I just had one quick question for you um, because you mentioned, uh, you know, bounce forward and, you know, be able to be in a better spot than you were before a disaster. Um, what, what are your thoughts on lessons learned activities? Because, that also, from my own experiences, because I also work in project management, tends to only ever be looked at at the end of something, which could be years down the road, and a lot of the lessons have been forgotten because sometimes those people aren't even there anymore. So what are your thoughts on that? You're reading my mind, Alex. <laughs> so, so this is one of those things, and we're actually busy with it with one of the, the rail sector clients we're consulting with, is if you have the compliance mindset, then lessons learned is an activity you have to do to tick the box. You know, at the end of the project, let's just tick the box. Or it's an activity we do when there's a failure. And primarily it's then done to allocate blame 
which, you know, we dress up in lots of cool terms like root cause and, you know, mm -hmm. those sort of things. But let, this is the real crux of it and why it becomes a cultural change initiative from our perspective is that, and there was a really good study that I once read out of the US called Lessons We Don't Learn. <laughs> and really what we need to do if we want to have resilience as a default setting is we need to become learning adaptable in individuals that work in learning teams, that work in learning organizations. So a few things are really important around lessons learned. If you're not doing them, you're, not, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up to fail, no question about it. But we should be not only looking at lessons learned from failure, we should be looking at lessons learned from success. What went really well? What did we do well? How do we mimic that? Those good news stories and the psychology behind it, which I'm happy to share with you if you're interested in it, we tend to not focus on the good stuff because we assume the good stuff happens organically, but the bad and stuff- And will happen in the same way again. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> but the bad stuff, oh, you know, we can't have that ever happen again. Uh, it, it's a very negative way of looking at it. It creates a negative spiral. In many of the organizations we've worked in, and you'll probably relate to this with your project management experience, you know, the real people who can drive change and make things happen become- uh, disenfranchised, they become frustrated, and they don't want to participate in these lessons learned activities because either they tick the box or they're blame-centric. Mm -hmm. So the idea with lessons learned is we should be retraining people to actually run you know, positive ones, be able to effectively tackle the negative ones in a way that, you know, and in safety, they have this really cool cultural descriptor called just culture, which maybe you're familiar with. It's really based on fairness, uh, we've consulted in so many organizations that have rolled out just culture. And every time we look at it, it fails because my perception of fairness is not your perception of fairness. And the second somebody feels it's not just the, the culture collapses. Yeah. So, so to, you know, and to kind of reiterate your point, lessons learned are critical, but if we only leave it for the end, knowledge is lost. Excitement yeah. and enthusiasm is lost. The, particularly if we're looking at you know, ongoing business or business as usual or long-term projects, the ability to influence the balance of your project is also then lost. And you know, particularly in project management, as you'd know, you know, the ability to fix problems as they arise or grab an opportunity, for example, we're running ahead of schedule, we've got some spare bandwidth, let's allocate that somewhere else. The ability to do those things make the difference between high performance and average performers. And as that's primarily why we've actually said that resilience is three things. And this is the way we teach it. It's don't, don't, risk. don't go into details yet because we're going to do that in the next segment. <laughs> no worries. I'll just name them. It's risk, <laughs> leadership, and high performance. And with, you know, to your point on lessons learned, if you can't manage those three things, you can never do lessons learned. Yeah. Uh, I, I've attended way too many lessons learned over the years where it becomes a blame game. And, you know, people don't want to attend for that reason. And uh, you, you have a lesson learned session where half the team that should be there actually left and they're reassigned somewhere else. They were contractors. They're gone. They've taken all their knowledge with them. You know, luckily in my last uh, program that I worked with, uh, I worked with a director who, and you pointed it out, you know, when something happens that's positive, capture that as a lesson. What did we do that was right? Capture that, that's a lesson learned and then work on that, add that to what you're doing. You know, so I, I agree completely with what you said, you know, and 
all the memories were going through my head as you were talking like, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and I think, you know, we'll talk about this more as we go into the next segment, but what we've been able to do now with our methodology is combine real robust academic integrity, lesson, uh, literally lessons learned with practical experience. And this is one of my key frustrations that there's this disjoint between, you know, the research and what academics tell us and what practitioners know. And part of our challenge is we need to bring those things together because academia for academia's sake is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. I've I've yet to meet robust frontline practitioners that read academic papers. It's too boring. It's too long. It's too frustrating in the way they're written. But on the flip side, academics then to a small small or large degree depends on the organization or the uh, academic institution. They, They don't give the practitioner the respect and credit for actually doing the thing and solving the problem because they don't have the academic integrity. I can't believe you just said that. Uh, And I mean that in a good way, because I sit on the advisory board of directors for the International Emergency Management Society, TEAMS, and I've always been uh, on them about, you know, we have so many academics, you know, uh, as a part of TEAMS and uh, researchers, and you're writing all these fantastic papers, you know, which is great, but how's that information getting down to the practitioners, the people who need to do this and and know about this. There's this big chasm between the two. And and it's crazy. You know, it really is crazy. You know, those who have the time, the intellect and the will to research how we do things better are not really learning from those who are doing it in practice. Yeah. And vice versa. So it's interesting because I guess I'm in a very fortunate place. I get to straddle both. So I've been able to grow my academic career and I still serve as program director for uh, the ACU University's uh, post-grad psych risk program, but then we're practitioners. And I've been able to actually have the, the joy of being able to integrate both of those things. It's, it's significantly difficult because the academics don't like it and the practitioners kind of go, well, which are you? Are you one of me or are you one of them? <laughs> That's a man, yeah. And on that note, note, we've come to the end of our first segment. We're talking with Dr. Gabriel, excuse me, Schneider uh, about uh, Brazilians. And we'll be right back. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, Small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one, hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? 
Find out by listening to the Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking about resilience with Dr. Gabriel Schneider. Gav, um, one of the other things that uh, you talked about in your presentation at BCI World was a VUCM. Now, I've checked that on the website, so I kind of have an idea what it is, but, you know, what is it, VUCM? You talk about it uh, quite a bit there. Sure. So, this is the reason you and I have jobs and why people are interested in what we do. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. VUCA, uh, a term so cool that I wish I coined it. I didn't. Uh, it, it, it originally actually started in the late 1980s by the U.S. Department of Defense. And it was a term that they were using then to describe the shift after the Cold War and that things were changing. It actually picked up steam and momentum in the late 1990s when the Internet came out and you know organizations were uh, bombarded with the inability to figure out exactly what was happening in a real forecast-centric or foresight-based approach. It was originally actually a descriptor for intelligence analysts okay, to be able to describe why the second they stop penning an intelligence brief, it may no longer be accurate or relevant because the world is so volatile and certain complex and ambiguous. What's fascinating for us, and we can maybe spend just 30 seconds to a minute on each aspect, sure. but the volatility piece in the world of risk, there's a really cool term called risk velocity, which, you know, in risk, we tend to get fixated by likelihood and consequence or probably an impact depends which model you're using. Same, same. What we don't understand often is the how quickly things manifest and that speed of something manifesting is often more important to the consequence than the likelihood or the academic prediction we have of how badly it would hurt us or help us. And, and COVID is a really good example. I talk about this all the time to audiences now when I'm doing speaking engagements. And I'm going to use the Australian example. You know, I go back to last year, January, you know, a year ago, and there were memes floating around, you know, about COVID and coronavirus and the beer and, you know, drink your corona. And, and a month later, we were all locked in our houses and nobody could go out. So, you know, the, cyber is another really good example of risk velocity. You know, everybody thinks cyber, cyber security is not relevant until, you know, there's a ransomware attack or somebody hacks their system. And it's gone from a comparatively low risk on a risk register to this is an all-embracing panic station for us. So risk velocity is important and it ties back to this idea of volatility. Um, Ambiguity is really important too. You know, we live in a world now of information overload. And as it was explained to me by a data scientist the, uh, um, probably about two years ago, and this keeps exponentially increasing, that more or less today in the modern world, the average person is exposed to more information in a week than our predecessors only 50 years ago were exposed to in their whole lives. Wow. And if you, th- if you think about it, 
you know, just think of your average day. You look at your phone, you've got emails, phone calls, text messages, social media, uh, however many news apps. So in minutes, you're bombarded with information that our predecessors, you know, would have to read a newspaper for, have to listen to the radio. They, they didn't have this bombardment of information. On top of that, we've got the challenge of false information, which is a, an ongoing reality. So ambiguity is the norm. We are very, very rarely going to be faced with decisions because risk and business continuity, all these things, it all hinges on decisions. Very rarely are we going to have these very clear, non-ambiguous, easy to decide opportunities. Complexity, we can talk about probably for a whole episode, but I'm just going to give you the quick snapshot. Uh, I like to borrow from all sorts of academic theories. So I'm going to just borrow from two quickly, one called CAS theory, complex adaptive systems theory, and the other one called chaos theory. And I've heard about the chaos theory. I'll give you a quick snapshot in these because this one can go on for quite a while. But there is a, I think there's even a YouTube video of a session at the Risk Management Institute of Australia conference two years ago where I explained this. It's about 13 minutes long. But realistically, if we look at operating states and complex adaptive systems theory looks primarily at three states of operations. Simple, complicated and complex. Simple is where the first industrial revolution kicked in. Very easy to define. We have a start point, we have an end point, and we can easily define what disruption along the way would mean and manage it. Complicated is the intersection of numerous simple systems. Okay, so we still have a start point, we still have an end point, but we could have lots and lots of simple systems in between. I like to relate it back to, you know, when we started manufacturing, we had one conveyor belt with people along the line. Now our factories are so complicated that without engineers, nobody can even understand how they work. Mm -hmm. But enter the world of complexity. The world of complexity is really, if you think about complicated, it still has a start point, still has an end point. But in complexity, we have numerous, however many, complicated systems intersecting. And it becomes so complex that not even experts can predict the way disruption will impact us. And there are plenty of examples there, but the reality is it's closely linked to a concept um, that, that was put out by a psychologist out of Harvard. I think she put it out in the late 1980s is where it started, a concept called the illusion of control. So when we are managerialism centric, we create what I call risk theater. We put all these things in place so we feel like we're doing stuff, but in reality, it's just theater. We're actually just pretending we can do all these things. And I often see this happen with business continuity planning. In fact, we're dealing with a client now who, as a result of COVID, have said, well, we need to think of every conceivable disruption and develop a plan for that. And oh, you, no, you, no. Yeah, exactly. The look on your face is, is, oh. is, the, is, is exactly my response to going, firstly, you're wasting resources. Secondly, you're going to spend all this effort on plans that won't be usable because you can't predict the future. And lastly, <clears throat> we're going to be... Uh, kind of comforted by the illusion of control and think we're okay, which makes you even more vulnerable than somebody who's sitting there going, well, I don't have all the answers, but I've set up my experts. I've done what I can. I've trained my people. I've got, you know, software that enables communication. So we don't know what's coming, but we're as ready as we can be. It's a different yeah. mindset. Yeah. And you, you uh, I, and I've had these conversations with other people too. We've got 20 plans, you know, and they're all detailed and they, they all deal with, you know, a snowstorm or, you know, a flood or whatever the case may be. And it gives them a false sense of security. 
like, oh, well, we've got all these plans, so we're fine. We can deal with, you know, all the major things that happen. But it's not always the major things that affect you. You've nailed it. And, you know, insurance is the simplest example in the world. You know, the, one of the first things most major insurers did when COVID kicked in is said, you know, it's an act of God. We couldn't control it. Therefore, we're not paying out anyone. Yet most organizations and individuals had a level of comfort saying, well, we've got an insurance policy. So whatever we hit with will be okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of these examples that kind of happen when we look at it. And then the last part of VUCA is this idea of uncertainty. And this is where the risk part comes in because, you know, risk is defined by ISO 31000 2018 as the effect of uncertainty on objectives. So by definition, if there's certainty, it's not a risk anymore. So true, yeah. we just got to get comfortable with the fact that we won't have all the answers because otherwise you and I wouldn't be employed. There wouldn't be risks. Managers could just handle everything with certainty. That's so true. VUCA is the underpinning reason that you know, we do what we do. It's the underpinning reason that all risk practitioners have a job, <laughs> but it is also the default state that we need to educate our leadership about. We need, we need another three hours for that, but I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I will answer that shortly. Um, so the starting point, though, is first getting people to realize that, you know, you could go and do an MBA or if you work in the government, very often you go and do, you know, a government policy or public policy degree and you go, I'm a good administrator. I can run stuff. I can manage things. Most of our education focused primarily on the skills of managerialism, even to date. So most of our leaders were actually just appointed as leaders because they were good managers. They were good at organizing limited resources to achieve an output. Leadership is different, right? It's the intangible skill set to deal with the unexpected, to motivate people, to influence them, to drive outputs and outcomes. We're entering into an era where to thrive, and this is, this is really what resilience is about. It's about thriving in a VUCA world, not just surviving, not just waiting for the next disruption. It's about balancing managerialism and leadership. One is not more important than the other. We need more of each one in different situations. So, for example, those of you in crisis management or disaster recovery, leadership is actually probably the primary skill you need in the initiation of a response. But as things go on, the leadership component fades and the managerialism requirement comes in because we're now coordinating resources for recovery and all the other pieces. So we need to balance those two skill sets. To answer your question, how do we get this leadership development piece to happen? This is really the challenge that we're trying to tackle with Presilience. It's a combination of things. The first is education. So what you're doing, for example, with your show, wonderful. The more we can get people talking about this, the more people listen, the more people understand, the more likely we are to see a shift in behavior. The challenge is, and there's a lot of psychology behind this, humans actually don't like change. We like stability. We mm -hmm. strive for the, bio the biological descriptor of homeostasis. We want balance. And we see this all the time, you know, at an individual level, you talk to a lot of people and you go, are you happy with your job? And they go, no, I really hate what I do. I don't like my boss. I don't like my company, but the pay is all right. There's some sort of balancing factor. So when people have reached that homeostasis equilibrium, any change is deemed negative. So this is a little bit less around change management and a little bit more around education, nudging, and I'm a big fan of nudge theory, which is a topic for another time. But what we have to do, and this is the task of experts in our field now, we need to be influencing up so that your leadership and your executives are not worried or afraid when they realize that they can't control everything. Rather, we empower them. 
So when we do, for example, we've got a cultural change project running with a health fund at the moment, and they've embraced this hook, line, and sinker, and we are training every staff member in resilience, risk intelligence, and enhanced decision-making. But we're then doing another level up where we train what we refer to as the influencers. And this is the important part. The influencers are not necessarily the managers and they're not necessarily the people that have hierarchical rank. They're the people that have the ability to influence behavior. And Interesting, because I can guarantee um, most organizations would automatically assume it's the director or the manager or vice president or whatever the case may be. 100%. And most of those people, and I say most because it's not always the case, most of those people are in those positions because they were good administrators and good managers. In fact, it's quite interesting in one of the other projects we're running with a rail company, you know, the way they used to run crisis management and they were, had a very robust policy procedure system, the best technology, one of the nicest crisis rooms I've ever seen that was set up and you know, there all the time. But the problem is that they were tasking people to be the crisis leads based on hierarchy, not skill set capability or even intent. And when I say intent, a lot of the directors and executive directors, they don't want to do that. They like to run things. They don't want to be the person who's coordinating things under pressure, you know, missing, missing hours of sleep and making critical decisions under those environments. It's, it's a different skill set. So to, to, to kind of close that off, we need to program the influences, but then we also need to make sure that, you know, the administrators, managerialism-centric leaders are not roadblocks to this stuff. So we have to be able to educate them. They might never be the influencer, but what they need to do is understand and support in the way that they should. So it's an integrated initiative. So I firmly believe this stuff, it's, it's not planning, it's not training, it's not software, it's not any of those things, it's all of it. And it's all of this stuff integrated to move along a maturity model that enables you to thrive in VUCA. Well, that's what frustrates me with some vendors is when it comes to resilience of any sort or anything, they, they focus on one, one piece, you know, and too many promote, you know, system resilience, you know, and then they'll make your organization resilient. And I'm like, no, if you're just talking about, you know, having a backup system, that's IT disaster planning. That is not, you know, resilience. You know, you're, you're using that label as a buzzword, you know, and, you're communicating to me, they're communicating the wrong message. I couldn't agree with you more. And remember I mentioned the term risk theater. Mm -hmm. I think we've sold a risk, sold a risk. And I see this much to support the point you just made. You know, it's easy to buy something tangible. So organizations love to spend, for example, on software. They love to spend on uh, tangible things. Like I'm going to hire a resource to solve the problem. I'm going to pretend it's that resources problem. So they go, oh, I've just hired a you know, business continuity expert. I don't ever have to worry about that again. Instead of actually realizing that if we want to have a whole of organization resilience capability, forget resilience, let's just talk resilience. We have to take a whole of organization approach. It has to be integrated. And it's fascinating. You, you mentioned as we started my background and it's a little bit different. I, I giggle sometimes when I talk to audiences because I'm going, I've gone from, you know, a guy who used to love, shooting, kicking, punching, and beating things up to, to, to somebody who's going, how do I motivate people to play together well to achieve a common objective? And it's, a, it's been a fascinating journey, but the things are the same, you know, because it comes back to decisions and it comes back to motivation. It comes back to empowerment. Mm -hmm. And without tackling those things, which are the leadership attributes, 
you don't get the outcome everybody wants, which is high performance. Yep. And we keep getting frustrated. We kind of go, oh, and I've seen this. You've probably seen this hundreds of times in your career. But we had a plan. Why is the plan not working? Yeah. And it's that false sense of security. Uh, you know, same with software. And so I don't want to pick on software because we need enabled software to thrive in the world we're in. Technology is a critical enabler. But, you know, people buy these, and I'm talking, I've got a specific client in mind, it's an energy sector client. They spend millions of dollars on this brand new integrated governance risk compliance tool that had built in, you know, business continuity planning and crisis response capability. It's a year into it, nobody's using it. And you're kind of going, well, well, well done. You know, you've, you've got a Rolls Royce with no driver's license or wheels. Yep. Yeah. And on that note, we've come to the end of our second segment. We're talking about resilience with Dr. Gabrielle Schneider. We'll be right back. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Today, expertise equals credibility. When you know what to do and how to do it, people follow because they acknowledge that you know more. However, stepping up in your career eventually pushes you out of your comfort zone of expertise. How you lead at those moments requires new skills. We're here to show you how to survive and thrive. Join me, Wanda Wallace, on Out of the Comfort Zone at Voice America Business Channel. You can find more information at leadershipforuminc.com. It's time to take charge of your own career path. But how do you get started? First, tune in to The Career Confidant with Marie Zimanoff. Each show will feature national business leaders, tips and insight from Marie and her guests, career management tools, and a weekly career smart tip. She'll help you move forward, earn that promotion, get hired into the career you want, and brand yourself. The Career Confidant is broadcast live every Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com. Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. Welcome back to the show. We are talking with Dr. Gabrielle Schneider about resilience. Uh, Gav, in the uh, last segment, you mentioned uh, uh, leaders or um, you know, vice presidents, directors, whoever, managers, say that uh, you know now that they've got a business continuity person doing things they don't have to worry and sometimes to me that's as though they are trying to um, take the risk off their shoulders and give it to somebody else and I think a lot of times vice presidents and managers don't realize they own the risk you know the, the business continuity person is just working with them to do what needs to get done to help mitigate it or, you know, transfer whatever the case may be, you know, and uh, it, it gets frustrating, you know, when I hear those kind of things, I have a BCM person, so we, you know, we're fine, but that's not 
Correct. Uh, do you have thoughts on that? Absolutely. So let's start with the real basics of this idea of risk transfer to start the discussion and look at the world we live in today compared to what it might have been 20 or 30 years ago. So 20 or 30 years ago, uh, human resource practices were different. We could fire people more easily. Uh, transparency wasn't such a big issue. You know, these days, we, we know, we see this intersection between corporate social responsibility, you know, responsible governance, and doing the right thing, being a good corporate or organizational citizen, all intersecting. So the reality is because every single person we interact with may reach millions of people instantaneously just via social media, it's a little bit less around the outdated thinking of, well, I've got my scapegoat, so who cares if it doesn't work, to a real embodied approach. And when I say embodied, I'm talking about we walk the talk, we actually do what we say, and we say what we do, and we integrate those things. It's a different mindset right, compared to the way most of our leaders were trained, which is around span of control, chain of command, clear, concise instructions to achieve an objective with direct accountability sitting with the person tasked to do it. It's different today. And I'm going to quote uh, a discussion I had with a very senior leader here in the Australian government who looked after emergency management for one of the states. And we had this wonderful discussion. And the crux of it was the real first responder, anytime something goes wrong, is whoever is on the scene right then and there. And 99% of the time, it's not the leader or manager. It's not the BC, the business continuity manager. It's not, if it's a cyber breach, it's not the cyber security experts. If it's an emergency, it's not the fire department or your emergency responders. It's, an, it's your average everyday person who just stumbled across something or was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah, so with this model, it's part of the reason why we're saying if you want to move through that maturity model, if you want to move from compliance to resilience and then to pre-resilience, you have to bring all your people with you on the journey. And we have to have shared responsibility. I love the idea of, uh, I think Jocko Wilnick wrote that book, Extreme Ownership. And this is the truth. We actually have to shift the way our, our leaders and managers think to actually getting them to realize if you are the top of the food chain, you are the top of the food chain. And it's a team effort. So I've spent a ton of effort in my own business, for example, building a robust culture where people are motivated around common purpose. We have shared accountability. We learn all the time. We try and find the balance between allocating blame where appropriate, but fixing things without blame where it might be a joint responsibility or it might've just been a failure in a system or legitimately somebody unintentionally made a mistake. That takes huge amounts of effort and energy, but it takes more than that. It takes maturity and it takes and not, not denigrating somebody who, when they have made a mistake. It's let's learn from it. Let's move on. Absolutely. Because if that person still has to work with us, we want them to learn, adapt and improve and not make that mistake again. And mm -hmm. this is where it's fascinating because I often have this discussion with our clients around who owns culture and the generic response is, well, human resources owns culture. And we're going, nope, everybody owns culture, everyone, okay, because the, act, the actions of one person who works for your organization influences culture. So if we want a great culture, we have to drive actions and behaviors. And it's quite an interesting topic to explore. But last year, I spoke uh, 
at the Institute of Strategic Risk Management's global conference. And there were some really smart people on that one. And these super smart academic experts were talking about these macro issues, you know, solar flares taking out our satellite networks and the failures in state and city level planning and, you know, how vulnerable we are. But for me, the point that was missing through all of that was how do we motivate the individual? How do we drive the individual to want to be part of the solution instead of being a passive uh, observer or a victim? And often we get this part wrong. We think, well, we're tackling these big things and we've identified them, but it's another anomaly. And I'm sure you've experienced this too. People love to identify things. They don't like to come up with plans and solutions to solve them or to oh, manage yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. All the time. Because oh, that's yeah. hard, right? What are you going to do about this? And what are you going to do when that happens? And then they walk away expecting you to figure it out. Solve the problem. 100%. Yeah. And in reality, like so often people, and it doesn't really matter what risk, division, let's talk workplace health and safety or OHS, doesn't really matter which term you use to describe it. Like a, a workplace health and safety manager, he can't keep or she can't keep people safe. What they can do is educate, drive culture, set systems in place, which hopefully keep people safe. But people have to bind to those systems, apply those systems and find them valuable. Otherwise, human nature is we work around them mm -hmm. and they don't work. So one of the, and this is the the, probably the last part to, to focus on. It's fascinating for me. Uh, in 2019, people smarter than me reckoned we had shifted from the fourth industrial revolution into the fifth. And the fourth focused primarily on the integration of automation, robotics, and AI into business and life. The fifth has been loosely described as it's the dance between man and machine. We're trying to figure out the, you know, how humans and this wonderful technology we've developed work together. And as a simplistic example, uh, we were talking to one of our software partners yesterday. They were going, their average user only uses about 20 or 30% of the capability of their product. So, you know, we've already reached the thresholds of human interaction with a lot of the technology we have. We've got to catch it up. And this, this for me is really why I'm so passionate about resilience. It's the human centric part of trying to align the capabilities with the technology and it needs to have both because as we discussed at the start of this when you brought up the very valid point of risk transfer and thinking just because we've got a person who's an expert we're sorted it's it's an, another piece of that illusion of control and the best <clears throat> and well, let's talk bcm let's talk business continuity managers the ones who i've seen who are the best are the ones who are very sociable they network they build rapport with people across the business. They are trusted and they influence. They don't actually do the work themselves. They teach different parts of an organization what to do and they coach them. It's a different skill set to what most people in the BCM world were trained to do. They were trained to identify critical failure points or, yeah. and then, they, then we were taught how to plan around them and ensure that they wouldn't disrupt our continuity. Yep, that's how I started. 100%. And, and that is right. In essence, it's right, but it's only right from the managerialism perspective. Yeah. The leadership perspective is different. So VUCA changes the game a bit. We're not saying one's more important than the other, but if you want to get a robust result, we have to grow both. Now, would you believe we've come to the end of the show already? I actually can't believe I've enjoyed talking to you so much. Uh, <laughs> I can't believe time has flown so, by so fast. Uh, you know, Gav, thank you so much. You're, you are going to have to come back because, you know, uh, People don't know that, uh, you know, I ha we had this list of things we we're going to touch on today. And 
most of it we didn't. <laughs> so yeah. you're going to have to come back again for, for listeners and, and do a, a second show. You know, it, it would be my pleasure and equally happy too. you know, if we have a little gap between this show and the next one, if, you know, listeners want to send you, we want to know more about that or more about this. It's, it's interesting for me as we're rolling this stuff through, some people know a lot about this. Others know very little. Others are experts in certain pieces and are missing gaps, but they don't know they're missing them until they listen to a conversation that you and I maybe had. And they yeah. go, oh, actually, you know, much like we did, what about risk transfer or, or what about influence or what about leadership? Mm-hmm. So a, as you can probably tell, I'm very passionate about this stuff. I, actually, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not just, yes, I run a business, but I, I think people like you are and your listeners we are the sheepdogs that have to help guard the rest of society to be able to keep thriving in the new world. And I think if we were better at that, the way COVID rolled out through the world would have been significantly different. So we, yeah, we, we really have a mission because who I, knows what the next disruption is going to be. Yeah. Who knows when and where, you know, but it, it's there. It's in the cards. It, history will show that it's in the cards. Well, Agreed. thank you very much uh, for, for joining. And yes, I'm going to reach out and we'll uh, make some time and come back and have another chat. You know, I really do appreciate everything you, you said. Very uh, interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to our next chat already. So thank you for coming on and sharing your uh, expertise and your time with me. And to everybody watching and listening, stay prepared, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll see you here next week.